It's always a little dangerous when the pastor brings in a paper sack with stuff in it. You don't know what it is. We'll come back to it in a minute. It's, uh, Jesus is enough, isn't he? He is. He is. You know how many things we chase to be enough? A lot. You know how many of them are? <laughs> they're, all, they're all false. They're, they're all fake. They're, all the things we think will be enough prove to be empty. And, you know, our parents could tell us that till, we're, till their dying day. But we got to learn that from ourselves, don't we? So here's the thing. We're in a series. Uh, we're calling it Mistaken Identity. It's a study in the book of Colossians in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you might open it uh, with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table. We have Bibles off to the side over there. Uh, we give our Bibles away for free. We think everybody should have a Bible. If you don't have one, take one of ours, please. Just consider it yours. Uh, we would be glad for you to have it. I do want to mention one more time, uh, we're still running what we call our Say Yes campaign. Here at the beginning of the year, we love to give us the chance to say yes to connecting in life groups, yes to volunteering on ministry teams. And so if there's some, excuse me, some way we can help you connect and plug in to the life of the church and to many of the things we do, whether it be ministry teams, again, or whether it be life groups, or even a life group we don't have, but you would be interested in sort of certain style or type of age of life group, something of that nature, just let us know on the saying, I'm saying yes form. Uh, you can drop these along with communication cards in the basket uh, that's back in the back on the way out. I just wanted to remind you of them. So it's no secret uh, that I have a preferred drink. Everybody tends to know what that is, right? Right? So I just thought today, in case I uh, needed a little sip of something, I would uh, bring a drink with me, if you will. So uh, given that everybody already knows my favorite drink is Dr. Pepper, I thought I'd have a little fun with this. Does anybody know what kind of doctor Dr. Pepper was? A physician. Exactly, exactly. Remember those old Dr. Pepper commercials from the 70s and 80s, you know, and you know, take a drink. And, and uh, I love uh, I, Dr. Pepper so much, uh, too much, really, quite honestly, it, enough that my doctor would say, Brian, lay, lay off the sugar. You don't need that kind of stuff, man, right? And so I tried the diets, and I'd, I'd try the other things, and I don't know, but my favorite thing is when you go to a restaurant, and they're like, we don't have Dr. Pepper, we have right? And so they have an alternative of some kind. And so I'm going to see somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be Mr. Pib, but for some reason, Mr. went away and now he's just Pib Extra. And uh, so, so you got Pib Extra, if you will. And there's all kinds of, if you go to your favorite grocery store, you know as well as I do, there's all kinds of knockoffs, sort of the fakes, the imitations, but you know they're not as good as the real thing if you know the real thing. Does anybody besides me drink Dr. Pepper? All right, so there might be Dr. Pepper in that cooler over there uh, today. I'm, I'm just saying, um, you know, for snack time. And, but don't, uh, don't try to use the spigot. Um, they're just cans that are inside the cooler. But, you know, there's Dr. Dynamite, right? If, if you need a little uh, imitation, there's Dr. Shasta. Anybody really go for Dr. Shasta? Sh Shasta reminds me, when I was a kid, we'd play, uh, you know, we'd have our ba little league baseball games, and then afterwards, there was always a cooler that the home field had to provide that had the little mini cans of soda in it, and it was almost always Shasta, and I didn't know that. I thought that was like baseball drink, you know? It c comes to find out it's just cheaper. 
so there's Dr. Thunder, right? Uh, Dr. Thunder is really important. There's Dr. Zivia, this sort of zero calorie stuff. I don't know what that is. It scares me a little bit. There's, there's uh, Dr. K, right? A big K, like Kroger, um, that kind of thing. But here is my absolute favorite. When you go to a restaurant, and this happened to me, I am not kidding, this week. I was at a restaurant with someone in the church, and I said, hey, do you have Dr. Pepper? And they said, we don't have Dr. Pepper. We have root beer. And, and at this point, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted as to what we're really talking about because I realize that we don't have Coke, we have Pepsi, it's, it's kind of, but root beer and Dr. Pepper are nothing like each other. Would you agree? I like root beer. Well, it does have bite, right? Right, right, which just means it has caffeine. But um, root beer is not the same as Dr. Pepper. And I like root beer. And this particular place, and we have our own homemade root beer. And it's a place that makes their own beers and stuff too, brewery kind of thing. And I, and I said, hey, 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 I, I guess I will take one of those root beers, if you will. And I'll be straight. It was good. I had no problem with it. But, but it's not Dr. Pepper. But then again, neither is Dr. K or Dr. Zevia or any of this other, Mr. Dr. Pibb, Dr. Dynamite, Dr. Shasta, none of that is Dr. It's all, it's all imitation. And if you have a favorite drink, then you know as well as I do. If you have a favorite coffee, if you have a favorite tea, if you have a favorite drink of some kind, right? I mean, I, I love hamburgers too, right? This is just getting worse and worse. I love hamburgers, right? But, but, but that doesn't mean that if I go to McDonald's that I'm like, this is like the best thing ever, right? Right? There's cheap versions. There's really good versions. There's everything in between. And Dr. Pepper's kind of that way in this sense. That there's just a lot of imitations. And there's a significant difference between the real thing and all of the knockoffs. Would you agree? Whether you drink Dr. Pepper or not, whatever your drink is, there's a significant difference between the real thing and the imitations, between the real thing and a fake, between the real thing and a false version, between the real thing and a lookalike, between the real thing and a wannabe, between the real thing and a counterfeit. And when it comes to Jesus, there's a significant difference, like life-altering, everything is different difference between the real Jesus And all of the fakes, all of the false teachings. So here's where I want to go with this today. Sort of the one thing is today is about the thing I want to um, share with you, the thing I want you to pick up, the thing I want to convince you of. I can promise you this. This is true of me. This is true of you. My understanding of Jesus is too small. I actually told you that a few weeks ago when we did the overview of the book of Colossians. This is true of me. This is true of you. My understanding of Jesus, your understanding of Jesus is too small. Whatever you understand Jesus to be, I can promise you that who he is in reality is so much more than your brain can pack in. Now, I don't know about you, but there are days of the week where with a, with with studies and with what I do for church and with people's challenges and just all the things I do as a pastor, there are times where I feel like my brain's going to explode. You have that with your work? 
right? You put so much in, the filing cabinet can sort of only hold so much. After a while, you just feel like inside of you, you just your capacity to hold it all, juggle it all, and keep up with it all is a challenge. Anybody? Yeah, that's me too. That's me too. So here's the thing. If you try to take all that God is in his essence, and then specifically sort of it's an extension of that, all that Jesus is and who he is, and you were to pack it into our brains and our understandings, there's no way, <clears throat> no earthly way I could possibly really contain all the understanding of Jesus. My understanding of Jesus is too small. Your understanding of Jesus is too small. Of course, when my understanding of Jesus is too small, when I play... <clears throat> shrinky-dink with Jesus, if you will. When I shrink Jesus down, minimize who he is, I tend to magnify everything else. Then my problems are too big. My sins are too irrelevant to matter. <laughs> my, my challenges are too big to overcome. My worries are too big to carry. My pains are too big to go forward. Because I reduce Jesus to some false imitation of who he really is. If you have your Bibles, I want you to read with me one of the clearest depictions in the New Testament of who Jesus really is. Colossians chapter 1. Uh, I'm just, I put, I think, verses 13, 14 in your notes because we're going to have to come back to them in the weeks ahead. They have to do with being rescued, redemption, forgiveness of sins. But I want to pick up verse 15. The Son... <clears throat> this is Jesus, obviously. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him, and all things have been created for Him. He, the Son, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And, and this and is sort of significant. What I'm reading to you is often considered to be one of the loftiest uh, poems or versions of poetry, or perhaps one of the greatest of the uh, songs of the early church. And this and in verse 18 sort of splits a parallel between the first section I've read and this next section I'm going to read. And as I explain it uh, in a bit, I think this will become obvious. And he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, and he is the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he, the son, Jesus, might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross i would not pretend to be able to take a text like this wrap it in a nice bow and make sure that in one preaching of one sermon you fully understand everything i've just said there there's enough here that i think we're going to spend eternity figuring it out quite honestly but in essence it tells us right in the middle that he is supreme 
that in everything he might be preeminent, in everything he might have the supremacy. And he should have this supremacy, and it, it gives him sort of seven descriptions or seven titles, if you will. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn over creation. He is the creator of the universe. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the fullness of God, and he is the reconciler of all things. He is the real deal. And my understanding of Jesus is just way too small. Let's start with that first description. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the is one of the ver versions of this says he is the visible image of the invisible God. I will say this in a minute, but if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. God is invisible. God is spirit. We would know that from the rest of scripture. Human eyes cannot see him. In fact, there is a just clear declaration in the Old Testament that if you were to see God, you couldn't handle seeing God and you would die. You cannot see God. So how is God to be perceived? Jesus is the image of of God in that sense, the visible image of the invisible God. The word image here is the word icon. Like we, we'll talk about icons and iconography and it's iconic and he's iconic and the 80s were iconic. Dr. Pepper is iconic, right? That, we, that word icon is this word. It's this word. And in their day, they would use the word icon like, like they'd have currency, right? Like Roman currency and on the currency might be Caesar, and they would call that the icon of Caesar. And almost nobody really saw Caesar. There was, there was no TV in that day, no cameras in that day. Nobody knew really what Caesar looked like. I mean, most people in Jerusalem never, never gone 10, 15, maybe, maybe 70, 80 miles from home at most. Right? Even Jesus really, other than when he was a baby and taken to Egypt, never traveled far beyond that region between Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and then and then over to where he did much of his ministry in the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth where he grew up and all of that. And none of that's very far apart, relatively speaking. It's the distance of here to Portland. So almost nobody knew what Caesar looked like, but they knew his image from their currency. Icon. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And you might say, well, wait, hey, wait a minute. Aren't we as human beings, people, humankind, aren't we made in the image of God? And the answer to that is yes. Scripture is clear. But when scripture says that you and I are made in the image of God, it means that there are some things about us that are similar, that share a capacity that God has, that our personalities and our rational way of thinking and our relational abilities, that, that those things make us in the image of God. But, excuse me, Jesus is more than that. Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or the exact representation of His being, of His nature. All that God is, Jesus is. And if Jesus were not fully God, 
then he wouldn't be the exact reputation, uh, representation of God. If Jesus were not fully God, he would not be the visible image of the invisible God. Now, why does any of this matter? Because there were people telling the church in Colossae that Jesus was, was just a good dude. That, that he was important, but he wasn't God. Come on, there's only one God. And we begin to get into Trinitarian theology here, which frankly, you can't wrap your brain around either. It's a mystery, right? The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is not the Father. Father's not Jesus. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Although the Holy Spirit is of Jesus and from Jesus, of the Father and from the Father, but none of them are each other. There is only one God. Three persons, one God. You, 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 yeah, that's not something you go, yeah, I got that all down. And we tend to try to, to try to break it down into like little parallels, little, little like, let me give you an example. It's like, it's like, you know, you got this leaf and there's the, this part of the leaf and there's the stem of the leaf and there's the, this of the leaf. And, but all those, all those sort of comparisons break down. In fact, they tend to lead us to false theology. Honestly, if we really think about it, we are made as human beings in the image of God. Jesus is the visible image of the image of uh, the visible image of God. We're made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is where my Jehovah's Witness friends tend to go south in their interpretation of who Jesus is because they see Jesus as being the first created thing. And then from that, he created everything else. In fact, they take this text, and in their Bible, which they have a Bible, it's their Bible, they have changed what it says. They have added words that aren't there. And this is why they say you have to read our translation and only our translation. Because it says what they want it to say. This says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. I can understand where the misunderstanding comes into play. I have a firstborn. Her name is Michaela. She was the, get this, firstborn daughter of Marcy and I, right? We have two daughters. She's the first one born. So this sounds like it's talking about order, right? But in that day, in that culture, everyone else would have known what it meant in a way that you and I don't. Their word for firstborn is significant, and it does on occasion and sometimes mean the first one born, but it more importantly represents a rank, a, a position, a status, a, a status of inheritance to be specific. And so you have, back in the Old Testament, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Isaac is called Abraham's firstborn. But actually, Ishmael was the firstborn. We get the same thing with Jacob and Esau, that there is this sense in which, in their day, the firstborn, meaning the one born first, was to get all of the inheritance of the family and all the name of the family and all the authority of the family and all the rank of the family and all the status and all the position of the family. And God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. 
David is eventually referred to, Old Testament speaking, of the firstborn, but David was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. So it can't be that he was the first in order who was born. It's that he has the position, the status, the authority, the ranking, the inheritance of all that goes with it. And if it says he is the firstborn over all creation, not of, not in creation. There's specific words that could have been used to say firstborn in creation or the first in order to be created. It doesn't say that in the original language. In fact, the very next verse is going to tell us that in him all things were created. So that this wouldn't make any sense. If he's the first created thing, then, then how is he then the creator of everything else? I mean, I'm a decent creator if you give me some Legos. But I, have you seen the universe? Like every camera we put up in space makes it more wow. Jesus is the first in rank over all creation. Verse 16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, and all things have been created through him and for him. That is to say that he is the creator of all creation and he is the point of all creation. That Jesus is so much more than we understand. Jesus is not only the one through whom all things came to be, but also the one by whom they continue to exist. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Our lives fall apart when he is not the center. Like the sun, he must be at the center of our lives. He is the firstborn. It's all by him. It's all for him. It's all about him. He was there at the beginning before there was a beginning of time. This is to say that Jesus has always been, and I would note for you, in the text we're reading today, this is all before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Because we're talking about before creation was born. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. This is to say that he is the alpha and the omega. That he has always existed. He is the agent of creation. He is the focal point of creation. He's the necessary ingredient for togetherness. He is the creator of all the earth and all of the universe and everything for that matter that isn't substance in the heavenly realms. And when I study the Old Testament right and Genesis right, he is the king who should be rightly reigning over his creation. But his creation has rejected him. That is this part of the story. When we read the Old Testament. But the text goes on. This is clear, isn't it? I hope it is. I think the first like four versions I went through this, it was clear as mud. Verse 18 says... And this is the pivot now where Jesus actually is born in Bethlehem in between verse 17 and verse 18. If we're sort of looking that this is a storied timeline, then there is his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
Because now in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and as it's going to say, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Oh yeah, I got all that down. This is why I say your understanding of Jesus is too small. What is he getting at? Well, he is the creator of the church. He is the head of the body, what we call the church today. The head was the source of everything. And so he is the reason there is a church. And he is the reason the church holds together. And if I think about how his creation rejected him, then the church is bringing his kingdom. It is the recreation from the creator, recreating us the way we were intended to be. The restoration of all he intended. He is the beginning, again it says that, and the firstborn. Notice that it said he was the firstborn before, now it says he's the firstborn again. But he's the firstborn from among the dead. This says that God died. Well, that's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. Think about being a good Jewish person who sees God as untouchable. And suddenly Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, and he dies I'm thinking like Peter, James, and John, and all those guys going, like, we thought he was the real deal. And when he died and they buried him, they had to have thought, he's not even as good as Pib Extra. <laughs> like, they thought everything died with him. Their hope died with him. But he is the firstborn from among the dead. That is to say that he was the first to be resurrected. And the implication here is that we will be too. That Jesus is taking all of the rebellious creation. He is redeeming it. He is restoring us to his original intent. And he is remaking us in his image, the visible image of the invisible God. And he does all of that so that in everything, he might be preeminent. He might have the supremacy. Only Jesus deserves to be the center of the universe. Only Jesus deserves to be the center of my life. And yet, I'm always taking imitations and false things. And every once in a while, I'm like the guy at the restaurant. But God, I got some, I got some root beer. And try some root beer at the center of my life. Only Jesus deserves to be the center of my life. Why? All of these reasons. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. This gets at our Trinitarian theology, right? All of the fullness of God was in Jesus. So Jesus is not a third of the pie. You and I, we tend to go, I want this to be logical, right? And so like the Father is a third of the pie and Jesus is a third of the pie and the Holy Spirit is a third of the pie and we're like, that that sort of makes sense. Third of the pie, third of the pie, third of the pie, whole pie. That would mean Jesus is one third God. That's not what the Bible says. He is the pleroma, is the Greek word. He is the fullness of everything God is. And through him, through the Son, verse 20 says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven, things on earth, or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so he tells us that Jesus is the great reconciler and the great redeemer. 
which picks up the theme before this text and the theme after this text. That stuff's so deep and important. It's about the real salvation that is offered by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's so important. I got to come back to that part next week unless y'all want to like, you know, have me talk for like three hours today. But I don't think you want that. So this section is summarized that he is the recreator of all creation, recreating in the church all he intended so that he might have the supremacy. Only he deserves to be the center of my life. Only he is the path to reconciliation with God and therefore the right path to reconciliation with each other. He is the recreation, the recreator of his original creation, and only he deserves the glory. And when I steal the glory from him that's meant to be his, and I try to make it mine, and I try to make it my kingdom and my dominion and my rule in this life, the bottom line is that becomes a real problem for me. And so I need greater clarity about who Jesus really is. That's what it says. I want to see if I can make this applicable for us. Some of it's doctrinal and some of it's life. All right, some of it's theology because we got to get the theology right. And, and some of it's life and how life is to really be lived. So I'm going to give you very quickly three realities about Christian counterfeits, imitations, false teachings, Three realities about them. Number one, counterfeits will detour, distract, and ultimately destroy my faith and my life. Counterfeits will detour, they will distract, and they will ultimately destroy. This is sort of the slippery slope argument. We go, what's the big deal if I don't believe in the Trinity? What's the big deal if I don't believe that Jesus actually worked miracles? What's the big deal if I think Jesus was never really resurrected? What's the big deal if I think Jesus was the creation, not the creator? What's the big deal? The big deal is the slippery slope because, because one thing begins to erode another thing, begins to erode another thing, and pretty soon you have no foundation to stand on. Try that in a relationship with your kids or with your spouse. Like, I'm pretty sure that this really doesn't matter, and I'm pretty sure that it doesn't really matter if I'm faithful to you, or I'm pretty sure that... Like, that doesn't work in relationship. You have to understand a person for who they really are. And what the slippery slope does is it erodes my confidence in the real thing in Jesus just a little step at a time, little baby steps. Most of us don't go through, the popular word today is deconstruction. We don't go through it intentionally like, like I'm just going to like deeply focus on deconstruction. It's more like these days, we just hear a little bit here and we, we're influenced by social media there and a little bit this and a little bit of college stuff that. And pretty soon we go, well, I just don't believe that part anymore. And then, and then that part leads to this part. And if that part doesn't make sense and this part can't make sense and pretty soon what I have is a as a Dr. Pepper of my own creation that isn't Dr. or Pepper does this does this make some sense right we end up with a Jesus of our own creation a puppet Jesus that isn't really Jesus and the whole point of the slippery slope is to move us away from the real Jesus because he has an enemy and that enemy's goal is to move me further away from Jesus. It's why I titled this series, Mistaken Identity, is this exact passage that made me title this mistaken identity. 
Because when I move away from the Jesus, the real Jesus of eternity, the real Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus of the New Testament, I not only misunderstand and mistake his identity, but I misunderstand and I mistake mine. I am who Jesus says I am. Why? I am his creation. I am who Jesus says I am. That is my true identity. I am his child. I am one who is loved. I am one who is graced. I am who Jesus says I am. But when I begin to mistake identities and I misunderstand Jesus, I begin to think I am who others think I am, and I live for popular opinion, for what social media thinks. We begin to think I am my net worth, and then I begin to live for greed because my net worth needs to be worth more, not less. We begin to think I am success or I am failure, and what I begin to do is I begin to be driven by pride and ego. We'll think, I am what I desire sexually. That's big in our culture today. But all we're doing at that point is living for the cheap imitation of lust. Oh, you're good. No worries. Counterfeits will detour, distract, and ultimately undermine not only my faith, but even my understanding of myself. Number two, neglecting the true opens the door for the false. Three realities about Christian counterfeits. Only the true opens the door for the false. This is the point where you wonder if I'm drinking Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Neglecting the true opens the door for the false. This principle plays out all over the place in our lives, but let me give you a couple examples. Let's think about our thoughts and emotions. When I neglect what God says is true about me, and I don't focus my mind on what God says is true about me, all kinds of false things begin to pop up. And so some of my anxieties, some of my struggles, some of my failures to understand come from the false that is dominating my mind and therefore dominating my emotions. When the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, this is Philippians 4, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, this is think about these things. But instead of thinking about those things, I often think about false things. And when I get obsessed with the false things, the false things begin to create false real emotions, but based on false premises. Neglecting the true opens the door for the false. I watch this happen in relationships all the time, where, where two people get married and one of them says, you know, I just, don't, I just don't feel it anymore. But in reality, what they're saying is, I've been investing in everything that isn't the true commitment I made on my wedding day, and when I neglect the true, I open the door for all the false. Neglecting the true about Jesus opens the door for all kinds of false teaching, and really, if you want the the formula for heresy, it comes down to changing a few basic things about Christianity. Heresy almost always revolves around changing either who Jesus is and what it means to understand who Jesus is. Who the Trinity is, Right? I ran through that before, but who the Trinity is and our understanding historically and biblically of who the Trinity is changes to the nature of salvation by grace through faith 
right? You got to work at it. You got to earn it. You got to have a priest do this for you. You've got to have you do this and this and this. You got to add works. You got to be a good person. You got to qualify yourself. You got to be good enough for God. You've got to, you've got to make sure you never miss church. Like, I want to be able to tell you that that's like one of the ingredients of salvation so that you will never miss church. But I can't tell you that because salvation is by grace through faith. Now that motivates a desire for me to know Jesus and worship Jesus and be in church and all of that. But that it's not, it's not what I do to get Jesus. It's because I have Jesus. Because I have Jesus, I want to worship him. Does this make sense? So I make changes to who Jesus is and make changes to the Trinity, make changes to the real nature of salvation by grace through faith, or you make changes to our true understanding of what the Word of God is. You want heresy, one of those four things gets changed almost all the time. And so the best way to counter false teaching about Jesus is a deeply personal relationship with the real Jesus, with the true Jesus as revealed in the Bible. If I want to avoid the counterfeits and say, hey, no to Dr. Pepper, no to Dr. K, no to Dr. Shasta, no to Dr. Dynamite, no to even Pib Extra, and no to all these other things, and I just want to say Jesus is the real deal, then a personal relationship with Jesus, focusing on the true, is the best way to counter false teaching. The deeply personal relationship with Jesus, as he's revealed in the Bible, i got to move these things back because I messed myself over here. Is the way to really know how to, how, to, how to avoid all the false things, all the little paths. And historically, there are a lot of them, but there's nothing new under the sun. The bottom line is there are certain things about Jesus taught in this text that have to be affirmed. That he is God in the flesh, that he is the son of God, that he is the creator of all creation, that he is the savior of sinners, the savior of the world in essence, that he's 100% divine, that he's 100% human. Historically speaking, you can, you can study in history, and there were the docetists who said, well, hey, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. Jesus just seemed human, but he really wasn't human. This text addresses that, and so many others do, that he was God in the flesh. Arius came along, and the Arians who followed him said, hey, no, 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 it's just sort of the other side. Like, like, look, Jesus seems like he's God, but Jesus was created. He was the first one created. There's modalism where they say, hey, God is one person, but he changes how he reveals himself. So the Father becomes the Son, becomes the Holy Spirit. I can see logically why people come to these things. They're just not what the Bible says. There's tritheists who say, hey, there's three gods. Father's God, Son's God, Holy Spirit's God. Bottom line is there's three gods. Romans thought there were a billion gods. They just say, there are three gods. The Ebionites, Jesus was special because of God's gifts to him, but he was still human, not divine. Not divine. The Macedonians said, hey, God the Spirit is really of the realm of creation. The Spirit is created. There are the adoptionists who say, look, Jesus was born human, but he became divine when God adopted him at his baptism as God's son. Remember, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. The adoptionists will say, that's when the divine entered into Jesus, but he was just born an everyday human being. The partialists are the pie guys, right? He's one-third. They're each one-third God. But it, 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 This just goes on and on. 
In Colossae, they seemed to be dealing with some early version of Gnosticism where there was so much emphasis on secret and mystery and what was special and that they knew something about Jesus that everybody else didn't. And they would seem to imply that he just wasn't all that much God. And Paul writes and goes, you got this all wrong. Your understanding of Jesus is too small. He is the visible image of the visible God. And he goes on and on and on from there. So I got four conclusions to sort of make this applicable for us. There are three realities about all the counterfeits. Four conclusions about my understanding of Jesus. Number one, if I want to know what God is like, all I've got to do is look at Jesus. If you're a skeptic, and you're like, I'm just not so sure. Just look at Jesus. Not the Jesus you think you've heard of, but the real Jesus is revealed in the Bible. When people who don't know the Bible at all and don't know religion at all and don't know faith of Christianity at all, and they come and they go, well, look, I started trying to read that big book once, and I started at the beginning because that's when you start reading books, right? Right? And I started at the beginning, and the story was kind of good for a little bit, but pretty soon I was caught in so-and-so, begat so-and-so, or this or that. And there were all these laws, and I, somewhere about here I got stuck, and I got lost, and I gave up. We haven't got to Jesus yet. I mean, honestly, he's there on every page. He's there at the beginning. But it's not explicit until we get a little later, right? So I always say, man, start with one of the Gospels. Start with who Jesus is. If I want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. If I want to know how God feels about sinners, just look at Jesus. If I want to know how God feels about any given subject, just look at Jesus. Number two, I don't need a better Jesus. I need a better me. And that's precisely what he came to recreate in my life. I, like Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, that I am the entire Old Testament in a nutshell. That I rebel against his authority, against who he is. And that I don't need a better Jesus. It's not that Jesus needs to change anything. It's that I need change I can't bring to my life. But he came to be the redeemer. He came to be the reconciler. He came to be the savior. He came to do on my behalf what I couldn't do on my own. And that's what I'll get into when we, when we dig into the real nature of salvation next week. I don't need a better Jesus. I just need a better me. And it can't happen on my shoulders. It happens on his hanging on a cross. Does this make sense? This is why my understanding of Jesus is too small. In the end, it means, number three, that only Jesus is enough. Only Jesus is enough. And so all the false imitations I try to drink into my life, be them greed or lust or pride or ego, they're all going to fall short. They're all going to seem like, well, they're, they're just Dr. Something else because they're not the real thing. Only Jesus is enough. And I think often I need to wake up to that fact in my life that, oh, Brian, what am I trying to make enough instead of letting Jesus just be enough? And one more conclusion, and I want to read some other passages to you about who Jesus really is and let it sink in. One more idea. This comes from John the Baptist. He must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. This is what John the Baptist said in John 3, verse 30. 
John knew it was the time where everybody up to that point is going, John's the man, John's the man. It's all about John. John's incredible. And John the Baptist goes, I'm not even worthy to untie this or tie this guy's sandals. Like Jesus is so much more than me. I came to tell you about him. I'm trying to point you to him. He must become greater. I must become less. That's really what the life of Christianity is all about. Where I unpack my ego and my pride and all the I want to be greaters. And I become a servant because the visible image of the invisible God is a servant. And I become a lover and a gracer. I know that's not really a word, but it makes sense. I become a person of love and a person of grace because the visible image of the invisible God is a person of love and grace. He must become greater. He must get the glory. I need to stop being a glory hound and a glory stealer. And a, it's about me and how I can look better and how I can feel better and how I can, how I can have everything he has and be an agent of my creation. I tell you, man, when I was a kid, I could build, you know, I could build sandcastles at the beach. I, I could build... Right? I had some G.I. Joe stuff that was just to die for, you know? I, like, I had some amazing little figurines and all that, and I'd create war scenes. There'd be all this amazing stuff, and it was better. It was always better than it played out on the, like, the cartoon I watched because I was a pretty good creator of it all. But at the end of the day, it all went back in some box and back in some closet. And frankly, as much as none of us ever want to hear this, one day I will be put in a box Like I can pretend to be the creator of the world and the one who deserves it all and the center of the universe, the one it all revolves around. I can pretend all I want, but I'm not. Because I misunderstand Jesus. It's all about him. And so in the end, I titled this message something like why Jesus is not someone to ignore or not someone to be ignored. He's just not. And yet culturally speaking, we want to go, you know, he's a good dude. Like, what's your opinion of Jesus? He's a good guy. It's the good guru theory, right? That Jesus is a good guru. Like, I don't even know what that means. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, honestly, I'm not making fun of uh, Buddhist friends. I, I just, I don't understand where we go. He's, he's this example of goodness, but I don't want to follow any of his goodness. People say, I love his teachings, and I go, which ones? Because if his teachings are so great, shouldn't I want to emulate them? Jesus is so much more than I understand. He is not someone to be ignored. Believe me this. I don't have time to unpack all the rest of what I'm going to read to you. But I want you to close your eyes. I know it's a dangerous, dangerous thing for a pastor to ask you to do in church. And if you fall asleep in this, then it's the peace of God that takes you there. And I'm going to trust him. But I want you to listen to these descriptions of who Jesus really is. And I want you to tell me if he's someone to be ignored. This is Daniel chapter 7. I put all of these so you can read them later in your notes. I'm going to run through them really quickly. As I looked, Daniel said, thrones were set in place. We preached on this last year. And the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. It's a... It's a throne with wheels and a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him and thousands upon ten thousands upon thousands attended him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him and the court was seated and the books were opened 
And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were all allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who Jesus is. Philippians chapter 2 says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who Jesus is. Revelation chapter 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard... I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's who Jesus is and that's what Jesus deserves. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and wages war, and his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on them that... <laughs> that no one knows but himself, and he is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white, clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. 
He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus is, not someone I should ignore, not someone I can ignore. At the end of the day, the bottom line is my understanding of Jesus is just too small. I don't know about you, but I feel deeply convicted that I need more of him and less of me. I'm, he must become greater. I must become less. Can I pray that for us as we conclude today? We always end with two prayers. One is a prayer of salvation. The other, a prayer of application. If you've never received Jesus and for the very first time you need Jesus Christ in your life, would you pray this prayer of salvation with me? <laughs> Dear Jesus, I put my faith in you. You're more than just a good teacher or a good guru. Jesus, I need you. And I believe that you came, that you've always been, that you lived, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were buried in a borrowed grave, that you rose again. So Jesus, please forgive my sins. Take over my life and be all that you are in my life and bring all that you have to my life so that I'm remade in your image. Save me, Jesus, I ask in your name. If that's you and maybe today for the very first time you prayed to receive Jesus, I would encourage you to tell somebody, tell me, tell us. You can fill out a communication card or online a digital communication card, but let us know because we'd love to celebrate that. We'd love to celebrate with baptism that we're celebrating next Sunday. We'd love to baptize you. Many of you prayed a prayer like that a long time ago, but you today are <laughs> reminded of who Jesus is and if that's you and you would just reemphasize in your life that he's the real deal and all the other stuff is the false, would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My understanding of you always falls short. So show me more of who you really are and more of what you want to do in my life. Only you are the creator of this world. Only you are the recreator of the mess I made with my life. And only you are enough. So show me how you can become greater and I can become less. Show us how you can become greater. We can become less. In Jesus' name.